0: Hello, and welcome to Veranda Financing. Today we're very, very excited to have Nana Spiel-Garbra from Blueprint Africa. She's the owner and creative director of Blueprint Africa, a design firm that speaks to traditional and modern African living. Hi, Nana. Hi, Christine. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, just, you know, to the, our list, there's no uh, tell me a little bit about yourself and why you decided to start Blueprint Africa. Sure, absolutely.
1: Hello, everyone. Uh, so as Christine said, my name is Nana Steel Garbara and um, I'm from New Jersey, born in New Jersey uh, to a Ghanaian father and an Ivorian mother, um, and grew up in this states most of my life, uh, and then you know, took a career change to to move to the continent. And um, from there, because I was, you know, overwhelmed um, with the amount of talent and artisanry that was on the continent here, and also because I had moved into the biggest house that I'd ever um, had in my life, I was really motivated to decorate and to use the things around me to do so. And um, I started doing research online uh, at the time and found that a lot of the images that I wanted to use for inspiration didn't really align with what I saw um, as being available and how I wanted my home to look. It was very stereotypical, uh, a lot of safari um, and animal references. So I decided to dig a bit deeper and – Try to find those images, those um, designs that were more realistic um, and more um, encompassing of the diversity of the continent. And I documented this whole experience on Pinterest, on <laughs> Tumblr. It eventually became a visual blog. People started engaging with me, asking questions. Then people started saying, hey, I really like this. I have a shop in Canada. I have a shop in Australia. Can you source 100 for me?
0: Wow. And I was like, wow,
1: okay, um, sure, why not, you know? So I started doing this um, on the side. So I'm a side hustler for anybody who is in a similar situation. And um, that evolved to my home being decorated and people coming over and seeing my home and saying, wow, where wow. did you get this and that? And they also wanted me to do um, their spaces. So it just really came from me doing it for myself and having a passion for it and then realizing
0: that I could monetize it um by doing it for others. I, there are so many things to unpack there and thank you for sharing that. Um first of all, how was it to transition from New Jersey to um which country did you move to? To Tunisia. How was that? How was that Africa? transition?
1: Um it was it wasn't as tough as people might imagine, I mean, there was definitely some culture shock because here I am coming from a very liberal um, area, New Jersey. I had moved um, in the meantime to Washington, D.C. Okay. Um, so very liberal, very, you know, diverse um, society to a very staunch Muslim country mm-hmm. um, to – um a place where there weren't a lot of people of color. I mean people of color in the sense of black people, obviously okay. it was an Arab country. Right. Um so there was there was that kind of culture shock. Um but because my my parents are African, we'd obviously been to the continent almost every summer. So oh, Africa as a awesome. whole was not yeah. foreign to me. And um my mother, being Ivorian, is also Francophone, and Tunisia okay. is a Francophone country. They speak French there in addition to Arabic. Okay. So, I mean, you know, moving anywhere is a bit difficult. I had a bit of a softer landing than I think uh, most people might. But, of course, there were, there were challenges. Um, if anyone knows about Tunisia, there was the, I was there for the Jasmine Revolution, where oh, wow. they ousted um, the then president. So just even seeing that democratic change, having come from a country, again, that was very liberal, that had rights, that had um, freedom of speech and things like that, it was just, you know, eye-opening and exhilarating and, you know, the whole gamut of emotions. And that's Mm -hmm. why travel
0: in itself is just so important. And then you also mentioned that it was a very large home. What's the architecture like Um, in Tunisia? Is it more like colonial style? Um I'm just fascinated to see like what kind of home was it, um and how did you decide to decorate it?
1: So Tunisia's architecture is actually very eclectic, okay, So okay. there's like these thousand year old um, thousand year old structures I mean they were part of the Roman empire.
0: Oh. um Hannibal
1: was you know had an outpost there, so they have a lot of influences from Rome. Um, So they have that beautiful Roman architecture. They also have Berber culture because it's a Berber um, society. So they also have that Arabic. um, Some of their traditional um, homes have that Arabic uh, flavor. They have a lot of mosaics, um, tiling. They're very into mosaic tiles, um, stained glass windows. So a lot of that, like my home, for example, has stained glass windows, like oh, that's a church.
0: Cool. Oh, wow, that's cool. um, So
1: lots of arches. That's beautiful. Uh, and things like that. Yeah, but then at the same time, they're extremely talented um, architects and, and, and very good at construction. Very, very talented. I would say probably one of the best. Um, on the continent of, of Africa outside of South Africa, so wow. their modern structures were fantastic very um they don't like a lot of curves. I would say they do arches but in the in the um, in the sense of the building itself like they wouldn't have a zaha hadid type structure you know where it 's very curvaceous and, and feminine they like straight lines um, and the real appeal i think the city of Tunis, at least, is that everywhere is white.
0: So they okay. don't have
1: this, like, in a, in a lot of our countries, in Sub-Saharan Africa, we love color, right? So the exterior of our house will be blue, then the next house will be yellow, then the next house will be, I don't know, some kind of brick red, and it's this kaleidoscope of color. In Tunis, because it's on the Mediterranean, it's a bit like Greece, where okay. all the buildings are white. Oh, nice. And then they only That's have... Amazing. They only have colors on their doors.
0: So the front door could
1: be yellow or red or
0: blue, but the whole house would be white. So it's really, really nice. Oh, so it's very beautiful. I can imagine. And then another thing that's interesting is the power of starting, that, like, you actually started this out of a need, and you just continued to um, decorate your home and show it on social media, and it kind of grew organically. And I think sometimes at the beginning of any entrepreneurial journey, we tend to overthink everything a little bit And rather than just focusing on, you know, meeting a need and continuing with it and sharing with the world what exactly you're doing. And I think it's very fascinating to see how you grew that as a side hustle.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was, I'm an accidental entrepreneur, I must say. I, I, I listen to a lot of um, other entrepreneurs talk about, their journeys and how you know their mom was an entrepreneur and it's in their blood and they knew they needed to be an entrepreneur since they were five years old that is not my story um i come from you know a background where uh we joke about it a lot in the african community that you can only be four you can only be four professions according to your parents Mm. and so doctor lawyer engineer or finance professional, Um, so I actually went the finance route um, and just felt that my career was going to be uh, tied to to banking or consulting, um, and I would just continue there. So it was really very accidental to me, and Mm -hmm. it was more also, again, like you said, seeing that, okay, people are coming to me and asking for something, so there's obviously that demand there That's largely unfulfilled um, because even as of now, I only know of maybe three to three or four people or companies that are solely um, dedicated to African design and promoting that in the world Mm -hmm. um, or promoting that to the world. So
0: it's a very, very niche space, but obviously the need was there, so somebody had to fill it. Right, right. And that's really good because what I like about your company as well is that because you've traveled to so many different countries and so many different countries within the continent, a lot of your designs meld those different cultures. Can you tell us a little about your travels within the continent and how you work with various artisans that impacts your design process? Yeah,
1: sure.
0: So, I love
1: traveling. I, I can I, I need to do a count of countries. I think now because I haven't done one in a while. But I want to say for for Africa, I've been to over 25 countries now.
0: Wow! So about
1: half of the continent.
0: <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Um, so I've been.
1: Yeah, I've been. I've been very fortunate um, in that regard, and I definitely think. Um, for us as Africans to recognize our own diversity because we always say Africa, 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 but Africa is 54 countries, they're all different. Um, so even, even us as Africans grouping them all together in conversations is something we need to move away from because um, we, we don't necessarily do that for, for other continents. But um, I've been to Cape Verde, I've been to Morocco, I've been to Botswana, South Africa. Tanzania, uh, Mali, Togo, Ethiopia—so many countries—and hmm. it's it's great because it shows at the same time what unites us and what makes us all, what makes each country unique. Okay. Um, and that's why I love bringing to the impossible each of each of that into into the spaces that I create. Um, okay. In accordance to to the clients, of course, but to the extent that I can, I, I I try to just bring in as much of the different countries as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of artisans, it's allowed me to, to meet them, to see them in their place of work, to yeah. understand their constraints, um, to understand their fortitude and resistance, because people are working in environments where there's not all of the amenities that you know, we would be used to as Americans. Um, right. Artisans are working with no mechanical tools. They don't have oh. chainsaws. They don't have, you know, a lot of the tools that we would think of when we're thinking, okay, somebody's going to make a chair. Um, some of them don't have access to electricity half of the day. Wow. So um, the fact that they're even able to make anything is like a miracle. So I respect, um, artisans that are based on the continent so, 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 so much um, mm-hmm. and think that, you know, part of my role in my company is to give them the means to scale up, yeah. give them steady, steady um, sources of revenue, um, steady off-takers for their, for their products so that they can improve their conditions, Because many of the artisans that are on the continent are very poor. They're very talented craftsmen,
0: but mm-hmm. they
1: are far removed from the global marketplace or global economy. We have a lot of brands, for example, in the U.S. and other places that speak of fair trade and, and, and are doing work to support them. But at the same time, the margin that they're putting on the product Um, a lot of the artisans don't see that. So even though they're making relatively more than they would have before, they're still not capturing a significant percentage of the margin on the end product. So um, in my business, I try to to eliminate that um, and Mm -hmm. give them really, if I'm selling something for $200 and I got it, you know, and I know that their cost of production is, $10, $10, I'm not going to give them $15, you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm going yeah. to give them something more substantial that can actually allow them to get out of their situation.
0: Yeah, yeah. That is true. I mean, that's another part of fair trade. There are companies that are doing good, but there are some companies that, it's like, they're still paying the workers significantly less than what they're charging in the U.S. And um, I always question that yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah. Because I like I like the wave baskets that you have on your website. That those are beautiful. Yeah. I've never seen that before.
1: Yeah, they're actually patented. Um, the the cooperative that makes them is based in northern Ghana in Bongkongya. It's um, run by a Canadian actually, but who has lived there for like twenty years. He's amazing. Oh wow, uh, Greg. And uh, he does all the designs for them, and then they train each other on how to weave new um, designs, and they're the only cooperative that knows how to do it. So um, just for that talent, it's important that they be compensated because this is intellectual property, you know, but they don't um, don't know all these, let me say, fancy words, lingo, like intellectual property. They're just like, okay, somebody taught me how to do something, And I'm supplementing my fishing income or my agriculture income, leaving on the Um, off-season. So they don't understand the full ecosystem, and it's our job. Those of us who do understand how the system works need to educate them as well that, do you know that when this leaves here and gets to uh, New York or gets to wherever, they're selling it for $200? you know yeah um yeah so just that education is all part part of the the
0: dialogue that
1: needs to happen
0: is that is that when they, when you tell them that what's their response usually are they starting to be a little bit more savvy with their um bargaining and their negotiation it, with people well because
1: they are organized, a lot of them are organized in cooperatives because that's actually, it's when you get to those economies of scale that you can actually have bargaining power, right? So a person who's weaving one basket is not going to go to like, uh, uh, let's say Conrad Shop and say, I want to, you know, I want to sell you my one basket, right? Conrad Shop is looking for somebody who can source them hundreds of baskets and can keep that supply consistent. So they often okay. organize themselves in cooperatives, and the representative of the cooperative does the negotiations for them. And yes, those representatives of the cooperatives are now more—you um, know—they know their power and they have more negotiating power and do the to, and do the best to get the best deal for all the artisans to get That's more good. of the margin, but. Generally, you know, retail is a, is a, is a tough business. So um, they're doing what they can, but it's important. My view is that it's important for us to sell, to not always be geared towards the West. It's important for us to sell to our neighbors, to um, South Africa, to Egypt, to, mm, you know, that's true. That's shops, true. to independent, independent boutiques and independent retailers that have more of um, that that understand that these margins can you know be realigned so mm-hmm. that everybody benefits you know in proportion to the work they're
0: putting in that that that's true that is definitely true out of all those countries that you went to though what was your favorite? I know that might be hard to answer, but you've been to so a- hard <laughs> <laughs> because they're so different I mean like. I'm just picturing Tunisia with the brightly colored doors and white buildings and you said you were in Ghana and I, I'm just fascinated. Like, okay, what were your top five? <laughs> if that's possible. Okay, that could
1: be easier. I mean, Ghana's home. So Ghana has to be on there. Otherwise, my dad will just flip
0: out. So <laughs>
1: I'll just say Ghana. Um but even just being unbiased, it's a it's an amazing story. In the last 15 years, um, the development's been astronomical. Like, every time you go into the city, there's a new building, there's new things going on, there's new restaurants, there's new. It's becoming okay. very cosmopolitan, very. Accra, Ghana? Oh, Accra, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, becoming very cosmopolitan, um, tons of returnees coming home, giving us new things. Um, so Ghana is definitely great um, if you want a good, like, city vibe. Um, I think I would also pick um, Kenya. Okay. Kenya has is also very diverse. Like, it has a bit of ev- everything. So if anyone's mm-hmm. trying to come to Africa for the first time, I think a good gateway would be Ghana, especially for African-Americans, because Ghana has, like, a dozen um, slave dungeons or slave forts. Mm,
0: My friend
1: yeah. actually taught me not to call them slave castles because no princesses live there, she says.
0: "Wow, well, well, we that, is so, about that <laughs> is so true. so We have to
1: be deliberate about the language that we even use when we, 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 we associate um, castles with slavery, you know. But I think for African Americans, Ghana is a great entry point because of just that history. You know, a lot of the original um, things are there. Like, and if you take a tour, you can't come out the same. Like, you'll be wow. you'll be crying, you'll be angry, you'll be sad, you'll be happy of you know how much we've accomplished since then. It's a life-changing experience. So Ghana Mm. for that, Kenya for a bit of everything. So it's very, nightlife is amazing. It's very bubbly. There's a lot of business um, opportunities, but there's also the nature part. So there's also for nature lovers, for safaris, for um, beaches. I mean, there's just everything in in Kenya for me. Um, So
0: I definitely love Kenya. Kenya. Nairobi, any city in Kenya? Sorry, any city you recommend in Kenya?
1: Yeah, Nairobi. Nairobi. Lamu is also gorgeous. Um, Mombasa. Um, Kilimani. I mean, there's, there's, yeah, there's a lot of, lot of good places to go in Kenya. Um. So yeah. Cool. And I'm trying to think where else I mean I love Dakar. I love du-
0: I love Senegal oh, as, as well. I've been I've been I wanna to go to um, Senegal so badly.
1: <laughs> yeah. Senegal is amazing. Um, very calm. I would say it's okay. a calm surf surf surfer kind of vibe. So okay. everyone okay. kind of chilled out, um, slowed down. Um, nice people are pretty all They, you know, it's kind of like the South in the U.S. Like people will stop and ask if you're okay, and okay, um, and things like that. So yeah, there's there's something for everyone on this continent. So come. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> I know I I'm supposed to be going to Ghana this year. Um, but like for me, like I'm like I want to go to Ghana and I also want to go to Kenya and I also want to go to Sen- Senegal and um. Like, how is it to travel between the different countries? Like, if you were to just get one flight over there, is it pretty easy to travel to different countries, different major cities, and reasonably priced?
1: See, yeah. So here's where we'll run into the conundrum. <laughs> um, okay. Regional integration is, on this continent is is very difficult, and it and it's tied to our history where as colonies all of our transportation networks were tied to going to European capital, going outside of the continent and not necessarily meant to, you know, speak to one another, right? Because France was, you know, France was running one country and next door Britain was running another country. So it's like they did not need to speak to each other. They didn't need to go back to their capitals. And our infrastructure reflects that um so you will find that it could be cheaper to go from um where i am now which is abidjan to paris or to brussels than it would be to go from abidjan to senegal i mean it's oh, wow. it's,
0: and it's right it's, next door it's, it's
1: a bit crazy yeah right next door i mean senegal is maybe a two and a half hour flight and france is a six hour flight wow but the prices could be the same um, the number of flights would, you know, there would probably be more flights, I think, daily um, to Paris and then to Senegal, not so much. So it's. I will not say that it's easy. It requires a bit of pre-planning. It can be done. Um, mm-hmm. But another thing is you can go by road. I mean, maybe not to, maybe not to Dakar because that's quite far. But, for example, Abidjan to Ghana, you can go by road. That's a day trip. Okay. Um, it's, pretty painless oh, good. um okay. so there's there's workarounds um, and certain airlines European Air Air Côte d'Ivoire um, South African Airways exist here so in the sense that you're taking one of those airlines to go back to their hub you know in their home country it could be it could be fine so for example okay. if you're taking South African Airways to go to Johannesburg you might find that that's easier in the same price than going to a country
0: where there's no airline that Mm flies from where you are. Yeah, that's true. Because, you know, I'll hear um, stories of people going to South Africa and they fly into Johannesburg, they go to Cape Town, and they go to the Cape of Good Hope, and they drive along. And it it seems like, yeah, you're right, it seems like different countries is easier than others.
1: Yeah, West Africa is particularly fractured, unfortunately. Um, Southern Africa is much easier for that, um, going between countries like Botswana, Namibia, Mozambique, et cetera. But um, it can be done. It can be done. But, yeah. it's, it's. I mean, it, it'll be either pricey or you have to start really
0: early. Okay, okay. With well, that's good to know. That's definitely good to know. And I... It's interesting that you're a returnee and you're also working on a YouTube series in African City about returnees. (laughs) And I just wanted to know how has it been to work on that hit show and um, how has that trend of the returnees coming back to the continent impacted your design firm?
1: Yeah, so in African City was amazing, an amazing opportunity and opening for me. It was my first time ever doing set design, so I basically learned on the job and learned everything I know about set design now from that experience. So I'm really eternally grateful to um, the creator and director, Nicole um, Amatesio, uh for including me in that project. Um, we are high school friends, and she oh, okay. kind of knew uh, about... How I wanted to start this design firm, and you know I was blogging and and you know trying to understand what my business model would be, and she was just kind of like, "Hey, you know, I'm following my dream also over here let's um let's get you you know let's get you to do some work for the show um so she had hired a principal uh, set designer and so I worked as assistant set designer for for season two. And it was great. I mean, I learned so much about how it's different to do for for television than it is to stay the space, for example, that's going to be lived in. Um, Okay. There's a lot of little things that you need to keep in mind. Sometimes um, just to get the shot right, you have to move the furniture so that it looks, so that visually it, it looks coherent, even though Functionally, it wouldn't make sense like you wouldn't be able to move between the furniture um, if you were to actually live in that space, et cetera. so it was it was really fun and it was a huge um crew, and everyone got along great during filming. It was a lot of work though, um, breaking down sets and putting them back up the next day mm-hmm. and having everything exactly in the same places. I don't know if you're like me, like when I watch movies and then I see a vase on a table, and then in the next scene, the vase is not there. I'm like, what happened to the vase? I don't notice that.
0: (laughs) You're a designer. Maybe that's fine. I don't notice (laughs) that.
1: Yeah. I notice these little things. So I made – yeah, I made – there's stuff like having to take photos of the set um, at the end of the day so that it can be replicated exactly the same way if you have to take it down – um, for whatever reason. So there's a lot of, of things that go into that. But I think the biggest lesson that I learned um, from Nicole and from that experience is that, I mean, it reflects what I heard Issa Ray say once, which was that we often tend to network up, and we want to, you know, look up the ladder rather than networking across or laterally. Mm. So I really encourage anybody who's in business that is like, okay, I need to go to the CEO of XYZ or I need to hire, like, the best, best, best person that's out there to do the work, I would say look in your friend circle first. Look at your old college roommate. Look at, you know, the people that are on your level that are hungry and that are trying to build their dreams as well and just say, hey, I have this project. Do you have any skills that match some of the needs that I have? And you'll find that they will work, you know, really hard. Yes, there'll be some mistakes and some lessons that need to be learned, but um, this is how we can, we can all, you know, we can all grow. So I definitely appreciate um, that project for putting faith in me as a newbie. Mm-hmm. And I think that we did great work together.
0: Yeah, it's a beautiful uh, series. I like it a lot. It's very fresh um, narrative. Um, and I and I like the set designs, and I like the fact that every character's set design kind of embodies the type of person they are, and I thought that was uh, yeah, exactly. that was very detail oriented, and I I've noticed it, you know, I I just think that's it it matches how they dresses, it it, it matches how they um, they carry themselves, and it matches their personality, which I think. That's typical, usually, of life, (laughs) and you're like, and even if I didn't know that's where they lived, I'll say, oh, yeah, I know that's definitely where they would live.
1: Yeah, and the experience definitely helped me to hone my, like, template for how to break down a client, because even though these women that we were designing for and some of their their, um, romantic interests, they were... People. I mean, they were characters that we had to break down. What did they like? Where did they shop? What did? How did they dress? What was their personality? How would she react to this kind of situation? Um, does she like luxury? Does she like you know uh, DIY? You know, we had to literally invent um, our, our our target uh, you know our target client for each of them mm-hmm. um, before we started filming. It helped that it was season two, so we could see kind of from season one um, what was and how they were evolving and how to put that into their spaces. But I think for any client, it's the same kind of um, deep dive that I have to do uh, to to get the right design for them. So I think that really helped me to hone in on the processes and templates to use to, to get that down.
0: And then also you have, like, a management consultant background, and I'm sure that has helped your business um, with your uh, different projects. And because can you just tell our listeners all the services you provide and also let us know, like, how your background has helped you grow your business?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, my background is in management consulting and banking,
0: and
1: I work for – you know a big four um, prior to to starting this business, and so that just i mean big fours are first of all they're accounting companies, so you have the accounting side you're very attached to numbers and to basically following every expense um so that for any business is is very important, um, especially for service based service based businesses where You may not necessarily have a tangible product that you can say, okay, I sold this and I got X. Right. You may find yourself, as I did in the beginning, giving out my intellectual property or giving out advice that I should be monetizing for free. And then you find yourself on empty and you're like, wait, how did this happen? Because I did all this work. I'm exhausted. Um, I remember sending 10 emails, but I have no revenue. So what's going on? Hmm. So yeah. um I my business model is basically like a law firm or a consulting business where I approach um bespoke projects with a fixed price contract. So I go through um the project basically outlining what I think various components will cost and I present that to the client. Or I have an hourly type fee, so like a lawyer when you come to me and I do some work, and it takes me two hours, and I bill you for the two hours. I also have packages. Um, So, for example, I represent um, a few brands in terms of their PR or their placement in retail spaces, getting them them wholesale orders, um, and that's done, you know, on a monthly fee basis, irrespective of how much um, level of effort I put in. Um, You know, but with specific like hurdles, hurdle rates or goals um, for the month that I have to meet. Um, I have the same kind of package for interior photography where it's like pretty much a set process. You know, it's not going to veer too much off the um, beaten path. There's going to be a certain number of photos that you're going to get at the end of it. There's a certain number of hours I can be on the site. Um, we're going to have a set number of photographers and support staff. So that's just very formulaic. That can also have a package um, fee and then also like e-design or when people come to me requesting just shopping lists, I don't, you know, they'll say, I don't really need you to do the design part or to do anything, but I just need to know where can I get this stuff. Mm -hmm. So there you're paying for my knowledge, for the fact that I've done the research for you. And that can also be a flat fee. So there are different revenue streams, and every business should have multiple streams of revenue
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, Definitely. to the extent possible. So once you have one that's fairly consistent, try to develop other ones. And they can be um, tied to your business or not tied to your business. It could be making T-shirts with your logo on it or if you have a catchphrase or a hashtag that you use that's associated with your business and you have a community around it, it could even be a T-shirt. T-shirts are not, you know, linked to interior design per se. I don't actually have that, but I'm just saying,
0: right.
1: you know, try to think
0: of ways to to um, have multiple streams of revenue in your model. That's so important. And also, too, I think that in the service-related business, especially when you're starting out, um, I have a service-related business, and I find that at first it was hard for me to charge people, especially people I know. (laughs) And um, I I think for some reason if people are to go to a restaurant and they buy food, they expect to uh, pay for it. But for intellectual property, they're like, can I just pick your brain? I mean, can you just answer these questions? And you're like, I'm working. (laughs) Like this is, like, actually part of my services. And I I think that sometimes – that's a stumbling block in the beginning uh, to state your price and stick with it, rather than allowing people to keep gleaning from your intellectual property for free.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a huge problem, and I I always find that anytime I'm in like an entrepreneurship group or I'm in a business group, it's it's seventy percent of the time it's geared towards um, product-based businesses.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Service
1: so businesses don't have as many um, tools or or gurus or you know people who can give us advice on how to really monetize. Um, there you know there are the people who you know monetize through speaking engagements and things like that, which are not tangible products. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. It's it's even a challenge to identify your pricing because yes. how do you even valorize? this advice that I'm giving. So if it took me five years to find um, a list of a hundred African brands um, that do X, how mm. do I put a price on that? You know? So yeah, even, that, that is,
0: yeah.
1: Um, Yeah, even finding a way to price your research, to price your time, um, that would make sense for the market, right, because you also have to present products that people are willing to buy. Otherwise, there's no point. I mean, finding that balance is really hard. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't actually have an answer uh, for, for, for that in general. I think it depends on the business and, you know, but it also is a reflection of yourself and how much you value
0: yourself. Right. That's so true. That is very true. And then when you value yourself, others will value what you bring to the table and um, like I said, like if someone invests in it, they value you and they value what you bring to the table. That's important. Yeah, and there's, um, yeah, and there's no
1: there's. I was just gonna add that there's no shame in being on either side. I mean, there's what a, a challenge that I have in my space is that a lot of the brands that I work with, everybody's doing luxury. Every mm. every. Furniture designer is a luxury furniture designer because they're doing it handmade or they're doing it right um you know mainly because it's it's handmade and I'm saying I appreciate that, and I know that that could be the case for a lot of of the businesses and that's fine, but also know that Walmart exists in a wor- the same world where Rolls-Royce exists, so there's <laughs> different market choices somebody is selling toilet paper that a mass market item and is wealthy, you know, and is a millionaire and somebody selling five Bentleys a year and is a millionaire. So you have mm-hmm. to kind of also look at pricing like that like that. Like do you want to price a bit lower so that you can get because your elasticity of demand is very your price elasticity, price elasticity of demand is very um sensitive, so meaning that if you just drop your prices by a $100, like, you will get a multiple of thousands of um, clients or not. So that kind of thing is also important. So in the beginning, you know, you have to play around with your pricing to understand your client base.
0: Yeah, yeah, because you don't want to be priced out and then you're sitting around not doing anything versus if you had a lower price, you could be very busy and then – as time goes on, you can increase your price because of demand exactly yeah yeah how would how would you encourage individuals just to go back to where it all began with you, and here you are um and you're in your your uh, your new home in Tunisia, and you had to decorate and how would you encourage individuals who are right there who just bought their first home or moved into their first home as their first apartment? How would you encourage them to decorate their space for the first time? And they may feel a bit overwhelmed and they don't know where to start. And um, what what would be, you know, just an advice for them going forward?
1: Um, I would just say take your time. I think yeah. as my first, you know, point, we have this tendency when we have a new home, we want to decorate it like, immediately so we go to like the showrooms we like we see a whole full living room set we're just like give me everything you know um and then you end up with a home that looks like a showroom you know Mm -hmm. in a a shop because everything's matching and uh it doesn't reflect you so i think any home takes years and years and years to decorate because you're going to travel you're going to Your grandmother is going to give you some hand-me-down chair that you're going to reupholster. Like, Mm
0: -hmm. there's just
1: going to be a collection of your life that's going to end up in that home. So just take your time. Get maybe the basics that you need to live, but then let the decor evolve with with your life, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I would also say, I mean, you had asked me... Um, about returnees, and I I forgot to to answer that, Um, in terms of how they impact my design firm or what we've been doing. And what I see there that kind of ties into the question is bring everywhere you've been and all your influences into your house.
0: I love that. So, like,
1: I've I've known that... um, I've seen that returnees have started new movements like there's this movement called Afro minima that is hmm. like mixing scandi with like minimalism, clean life, but there's that african um yeah there's that african flavor to it it's more subtle but it's still there then there's another movement um that was coined by an architect in Ghana called Indo natives um which is you know a play on innovative where the innovation comes from using local materials, or it comes from, um, you know, using local traditions or local symbolism in your design aesthetic. So I think that for anyone who has a new home, definitely merge, bring to the two or three things that you're passionate about, regardless of where they're from, whether they're from China or from Africa or um, from the U.S. Just Bring it all together and mm-hmm. try to find a cohesive way to present it. Like, you don't have to fit into one box. I feel, mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, we often take these quizzes where it's like, what kind of design aesthetic are you? And then you come out and you're like a mid-century and you're modern, contemporary or traditional or whatever. Just make up your own thing. <laughs> you know, <just> Yeah. be... <laughs>
0: Be I wanna be. If
1: you want to be Afro mid-century or you want to be eclectic,
0: you know, I don't know, just do it. I always struggle with those quizzes because I'm like, I really like minimalism, but at the same time, I love, um, you know, like Victorian-type furniture, and I also ch- like mahogany because, you know, I have the Caribbean background, and my dad was a furniture maker for many years. Um, But I also, like, I mean, there's so many different overlaps. You know, it's just, like, I grew up, um, my dad, we grew up from, I'm from Jamaica, and um, he had a furniture business in uh, Jamaica and then also in the U.S. and Florida. And I grew up around him constantly looking at design magazines and constantly um, creating um, different types of furniture and delivering furniture. So, like, I, I appreciate design to another level because I think it's because of my dad and um, that's why I was around all my life. So whenever I see like those quizzes, it's like, are you minimalism or are you like romantic? I'm like, no, I don't know. It's like there's so many overlaps. I'm everything. Yeah. It's, I'm, it's like... everyone. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> It's like, what does that mean? And and I think it limits people's background. You know, it's like, like you said, you you grew up in New Jersey, and your parents are from Ghana and Ivory Coast. That's going to impact your design. And like I um I I really appreciate you know different um British colonial era furniture because that had a lot to do with what I saw when I grew up, and it kind of makes me feel like home. But at the same time, am I going to do that throughout my entire household? <laughs> so yeah, I'm not gonna put yeah. mahogany everywhere. Yeah,
1: yeah. What I, what I would say is that classic is your classic. So right. something is timeless because you can you as an individual can live with it for the next 100 years. So don't fall into trying to pigeonhole yourself into one style or you could be multiple styles and one side of your house could be mid-century the other side could be whatever you know could be something else could be traditional it it doesn't matter as long as
0: it's what you like and it's classic to you yeah Yeah, I definitely agree and you are such an inspiration because you fit into so many categories and overlaps I mean you are from a finance background you know what it's like to work in the corporate world, and then you switch gears and went into a creative industry and from your side hustle. And what advice would you give to aspiring entrepreneurs who their career path is saying one thing, but they still have an interest in the creative side or um, something that may not reflect exactly what they do in a day job and how they can transition that to like a full-time um, career?
1: Um, I would say that when it's still a side hustle, you have to the best thing to do is to make yourself an expert in whatever your new area is. That might mean going to school, getting a formal education degree, certificate, you know night classes. It could just be burning the midnight oil reading, design, you know, in my case, reading all the design magazines, all the blogs, um, just doing copious research on the internet. Using tools like Skillshare, I mean now it's it's literally so easy to be a career shifter because everything is at your fingertips if you have the motivation to go out and seek it. Mm. So I would say um, step one would be do do some research and become a you know to the extent possible a subject matter expert in the field that you want to go into. The second thing, which Um, I admit that I didn't do so well in the beginning, what was to, well, two things, was to figure out what is the product, like what are, what and what you're doing can actually be monetized and who wants it, Um, because you don't want to have what they call like a unicorn business idea, which is like, it really sounds awesome in your head. And everybody you tell it to thinks it's awesome, but you don't actually have any customers, or you don't have anybody who's actually like, I will pay for money for this. Mm, because there's sure. lots of great ideas that can't be monetized; that they're you know public goods, but people wouldn't really pay for it. Right. They might use it if it, you know as a free rider if it was available, but they wouldn't be willing to pay for it. So I think that. In the beginning stages of my business, I I had a few of those, and that wasted a lot of time, and I needed to pivot. So if I could go back, I would say I would have done a lot more to figure out which one of these is the actual one that people want that they will pay me money for and not what they do for free. Right. Um, And then, uh, oh, I think now I've forgotten what the second thing I wanted to say was. Um sorry, I lost my train of thought. But yeah. No, it's okay. Definitely figure out some um, figure out how to monetize early. Yes. Oh, not bring really, really. Don't get distracted by the um the the accolades. Okay. So we live in a social media era. Yes. Yeah. And I also got very distracted with my social media community. And when I say distracted, I don't mean to be um, unappreciative of of the community I have. I have 15,000 followers across my my platforms, which is amazing. And the one that really kicked everything off was on Picturesque. I woke up one day and I had 5,000 followers and I
0: was like, what is going on? Wow.
1: I catered to, to that, so I spent a lot of money, not money, but time, rather, on engaging them and continuing to build my Pinterest, but less time on actually setting up the foundations of my business. And mm. so that meant that when I wanted to roll my business out, there were so many things that still weren't done. I didn't have payment systems. I didn't have, you know, shipping and logistics in place. So even all of the demand I was getting online, I couldn't fulfill um, the business side of things because things were still just not working. Um, so I would say it's really, really easy to get drowned and drunk off of the likes and the, you know, people coming and saying you're awesome and this is great and neglecting what is really going to bring you, um what's really, you know, neglecting the foundation of the business side of things.
0: That's so, so true. <laughs>
1: I just wanted to say, for me, those were the two the two things. Research, mm-hmm. become a subject matter expert, focus on monitoring and what your product is, and don't get distracted from the actual business
0: side of the business. That is so true. And I, I think um, I heard a quote that this generation will have to learn what to say no to. <laughs> because we're we're getting bombarded with so much information. And I find that sometimes it's even harder to even stay focused on what your business is because you might find like, oh, wow, what she's doing is pretty cool and what he's doing is pretty cool. I wonder if I could do that too. And it's like you can only do so much. And you don't want to be all over the place either. And um, we only have so much time. And, if, um, and I find that in the social media era, it's very easy to also get very distracted on the, what you have to do as an individual or as your own business. Yeah. So I really appreciate you stopping by. I just have our rapid-fire questions. I learned so much about your company and um, what you do. Uh, and I hope our listeners could glean a lot from your knowledge and what you shared. I think it's a very interesting mix of um, – a finance background along with interior design and i think is very fascinating and especially in this time period of what you're doing with design on the continent i am excited to see where this heads uh thank you and um we thank just you. have our we just have our rapid fire questions and um it's just you know you answer these questions the first thing that comes to your mind and um just to give the uh, listeners a little bit about Nana and uh, what you like. So, first question is, uh, what's your favorite color?
1: Um, I'm currently torn between black and
0: gray. Okay, you are from the northeast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes i can't deny it i can't deny
0: it i lived in new york and there was a time where all my clothes were like black and gray and then i came back to florida It's yes. like oh i need color i need color <laughs> all right second question uh, i love color but somehow yeah. okay no uh-huh. good no i was just gonna say i love color but somehow
1: i always just feel like if I were to be surrounded by gray or black, I would be happy. I don't know why. But there's a lot of color in my house, so yeah. I don't know.
0: But yeah. <laughs> what, I, what I like now in the design community is using um, the color black on um, walls and interior spaces. It, it has a very weak yes, look. So I, I like that a lot. Yeah, like I've seen people do like black kitchen cabinets and black bathrooms. It's really stately. All right, next question, coffee or tea? So
1: I'm a habitual coffee drinker. I drink at least one cup of coffee a day, which is really bad. So I'm trying to transition to tea, but I've not been successful yet. Okay.
0: What about chai? Maybe chai might be like that nice in-between. Yeah, I love chai.
1: As for if if we're choosing cheese, then try is my favorite. But I okay. just can't break the habit yet. But I'm gonna get there. Yeah,
0: yeah. you will. <laughs> um, third question: dessert or dinner? Um, I'm definitely a dessert girl. Yeah. I would definitely <laughs> pick cake over chicken. <laughs> I am. Yeah, that's my, that's my weakness as well. Um, favorite dish? Oh, my goodness. Um, oh, my.
1: Um, I really love palm nut soup, which I don't know um, how many of your listeners are familiar with it, but it's basically like a curry of made from palm kernels hmm. um, that's eaten a lot in this region of the world. It's an African dish. Um, so I would say palm nut soup with suku, which is um
0: pounded plantain. Oh, that sounds really good. So it's like palm kernels with uh, cooked in curry. And they Yeah, pound. it's like a
1: it's like a curry texture. With okay. like smoked fish and crab and um you know, pieces of meat. Um but the curry's based off of
0: of palm kernels. That that sounds really good. I have to try that. And the fifth yeah, one, I very healthy, but delicious. It's not, <laughs> I love curry. I love curry. Anything. The fifth question, you actually answered that during our interview session, and um, it was a favorite African country, and I I know it, it's hard to just pick one.
1: Yeah, there's there's there's, there's so many. I would say my top definitely if, if if somebody wanted to visit the continent for first time Ghana, Senegal, Kenya, Tanzania, Ethiopia has a lot of um very if you're if you're a history buff then Ethiopia, Tunisia, Morocco, um Egypt obviously um yeah, for history, safaris, South Africa, Namibia. Well, maybe not so much on Namibia, unless um, Namibia is more for landscape. So if you're a okay. landscape person, they have a place like where the ocean meets the desert or something. Oh, wow. Uh, I've not seen it myself, but Namibia, that's where Mad Max was filmed. So if you remember the visuals of Mad Max, you can get an understanding of the beauty of um, Namibia. So for landscape and safari type things, definitely the Southern Africa region towards the East Africa region. Okay. If you want to see Africa's most well governed and cleanest city, then you have to go to Rwanda. So that's Kigali. Um but so
0: depends that. on the slavery you're looking for. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard really good things about Rwanda. And a a lot of women are in power there too, which is pretty amazing. Yes, they're very, they're Afri- They're very um, gender gender focused over there. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much uh, about us to stop by Veranda Financing podcast. Um, how can guests learn more about Blueprint Africa? So all of our social media handles
1: are Blueprint Africa. So you can find us on Facebook, on Pinterest. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Tumblr, um, Google Plus. We're a bit everywhere. Twitter, but always
0: Blueprint Africa. And obviously our website is www.blueprintafrica.com as well. Awesome. And it's going to be in the show notes, guys, so um, you'll be able to learn more about it. Thank you so much, Nana, for stopping by. And um, I learned so much. And uh, learn more about Blueprint Africa, please be sure to support. Her website, again, is www.blueprintafrica.com. Thank you. Have a great one. Thank you.